I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I don't necessarily see the Western world as full of toxicity and, and horrible things in terms of money and, and mechanics and technology. It's the way we use them. There are some marvellous things we're talking today because of technology. It's how do we use these things in a loving way that's united and brings us together. And through unity, we certainly can make sure we have got equality throughout this wonderful planet. Hi everyone, back I am Raghu Marcus with Paul Callahan and we're just meeting this in this moment, in this present moment and Paul, I'm talking to Paul, he's in Australia and I'm in California, the wonders of the digital age, at least the positive part shall we say and uh, we have a, a wonderful, Paul put together a wonderful book with his partner Uncle Paul Gordon and it's called The Dreaming Path, and it's about Australian indigenous culture and how it is that we can take advantage of it uh, in our, shall we say, off-center world. I mean, is that a kind of kind thing, Paul, to Agreed. say? Agreed. <laughs> um, you know, I, I uh, before we even get into anything, so, I mean, just briefly, I, I would say... We're going to hear Paul's story of meeting Uncle Paul and his uh, reconnection into indigenous culture. And uh, Uncle Paul is a revered elder. Um, we won't use the word guru because I noticed in the book you're a little bit shy of that. Um, but I just want to read something, which is a quote in the book from Uncle Paul Gordon. And it needs a little bit of reference point, Paul, uh, which is a, a definition of country. Because when you say country here, especially in this country, the U.S. of A., uh, it, it's all about nationalism, basically. So what is our, your, I, I have a good feel for it, but if you wouldn't mind, because I, that's needed when I read this quote. All right, my brother. Well, can I describe it through a Dreamtime story, maybe? Yeah. And this will take a few moments, but it's really worth it's the rest of the, the the conversation because it really will really set up a beautiful framework and construct of what Aboriginal ways of knowing, doing and being are. So this is a Dreamtime story and 
for those of you that maybe haven't heard of what Dreamtime stories are, Dreamtime stories give a connotation of myth and mythology because that's an English word, Dreamtime, and it goes dreamy, can't be real. So it's not a very good word, but it's a word that has currency and people understand. So we do use it. We do bring the two worlds together. Mm. So in our way, it's really a Nurempa story, and Nurempa is our word for the law and and the old ways. And so this story is a creation story. And so in the beginning, in the beginning, there was a big ball of water just sitting alone in space. And when I talk about space, I'm talking about Star Trek space, real space with stars, Mm -hmm. this big ball of water just sitting there quietly, but under the water was the earth, our mother, Mother Earth. And so obviously in that story, that big ball of water is planet Earth, and our people knew about planets. Our people knew about all the cosmos. And so the mother was sitting there just quietly, and then one day Huawei, the rainbow serpent, who was inside the mother's belly, started to wriggle, and the rainbow serpent is a really, really big snake in our law. And the snake started to wriggle, and the mother went, oh, I don't feel too too well. I feel a bit uncomfortable, and she started to move. And she started to get cramps in her tummy and Huawei moved faster and faster. And she's going, this has never happened. I'm going to have to move some more. So she started to rise and she rose and she rose. And always the hairs go up in my hands when I tell this part of it until eventually the waters broke and the mother was born. And that's Mother Earth. And she was born all out the entire world, not just Australia, everywhere. Meanwhile, up in the sky, our sky father, the creator, Baemi, he'd been watching all over the universe for since the beginning for a long, long time, and he'd never seen anything so beautiful. And he went, wow, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I must go down and find out what that is. And that's what he did. So he was in spirit form. He came to Earth as a man, and he walked country. And throughout Australia, we'll have sites we can take you to where there are footprints, and we'll say that's Baemi's footprints. And he got to know the mother, and it takes time for a relationship, but eventually they became friends, and eventually they fell in love, and he didn't want to leave. But we all have responsibilities, and so sometimes we'll find ourselves thinking, gee, I want to be here, but I've got responsibilities to go there. And so Baemi had to go back up into the sky, and that's what he did, and he became big again. And to get back into the sky, he had to launch himself from a mountain, and the mountain flattened. So throughout Australia, when you see flat-top mountains, that's where this big story was, where Miami stood on top of the mountain and went into the sky. And he went back up into the sky, but his love was always there. And because of their love and they'd made love, the mother became pregnant. And then she gave birth, and she gave birth to everything. She gave birth to the trees. She gave birth to the bugs. She gave birth to the birds, to the dolphins, to every living thing. And last of all were the humans. We were born last. And so that tells us that everything comes from the mother and we all come from love and we're all one family. And so as an Aboriginal person, country is that totality. So country is the mother, Mother Earth, who gave birth to us. And we never say we're on country, we say we're in country, we're in the mother. Of course, we don't walk on her, that bruises her, we're in her. But also all around us are all of her children. So I'm never alone. I can go and sit in the bush or the forest or the nature And all around me are my brothers and sisters. And when a bird comes, that's my brother or an uncle or a relation. And the old people say, if you really want to learn, go and sit in nature. Because we were born last to remind us that we're the youngest of the children. And so the teachers are all around us. And so, yes, we can have teachers in terms of human form. But if we really want to speak to those old wise people, we go out and sit in the bush and be still for half a day. And then we will start getting those insights. And so country is Mother Earth and everything in Mother Earth, and that includes the sky and the waterways and the air we breathe. And so it's all those things, one totality. And the last little comment about that is we are one thing. We are one. So humans aren't separate from the trees, aren't separate from the soil, aren't separate from the waters. And so in our way, and we use this in our Western Aboriginal medical systems, and organisations, our definition of well-being is I can't be well if everything around me isn't well. So that's non-Aboriginal people. That's my brothers and sisters. That's everything. And then we're all well. Mm-hmm. That's uh, 
Very much like the bodhisattvic vow of the... Of, oh, okay. Right? I am not going anywhere until everyone is free. I am not going to yes. even get my own freedom until everybody is free. It's that completely generous vow. Here, Here's what I wanted to read, which you've so aptly... Thank you for that beautiful story. Uh and this is from Uncle Paul Gordon. Being Aboriginal is not the color of your skin, but your connection and responsibility to country, mother, and all things in nature. It's about your connection to trees, fish, birds, rivers, rocks, and stars. It isn't about how you look. It isn't even about your bloodlines. It is about something unseen deep inside you. That That's... Uh, that's a truth that crosses over all mystical traditions, and certainly, um, uh, what a wonderful way for him to say that. I just loved it. What I think we need from you now, though, Paul, is uh, is your story. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing, and it's uh, the fruition of it is extraordinary in terms of how you re-entered a world. You you come from indigenous uh, heritage? Yes. yes, I'm a Waramai man, and I'm living just about 10 minutes from my traditional country. And given there will be viewers from hopefully throughout the world, but certainly the US, if you were in my country, so I'll do this kind of over, over, the, over the technological connect, I would welcome you to country, and when I welcome you to country, it's like welcoming you into my house. And so in my language, the Garang language, So that's me in my language saying, welcome my brothers and my sisters, we are one. Now, I couldn't have said that 25 years ago. And I did have the great privilege of speaking in America back in 2016 at a, a, a World Indigenous Healing Conference, Spiritual Healing Conference, and got to meet people from all over the world and what a wonderful thing that was and got to hear people's stories and how we are working together and how we do welcome each other. And it's wonderful to see that unity coming, including today's convo, which we call yarn in Australia. We have a yarn. We talk to each other. It's not yarn like wool. We yarn means we sit around informally and we share stories about each other so my story starts with the aboriginal story so for 100,000 years aboriginal people had a life of well-being we had no wars we had no armies and the old people say while the western world built armies we built relationships so our world is one of relationships with each other with ourselves, and with country and that all changed in 1788 when the colonizers came and started to invade country, so much so that we lost 90% of our population within three generations and there was only 10% of us left and very traumatised. And from there, the government had a policy of assimilation where they said Aboriginal people will not exist within X amount of time. They're going to die out and we need to accelerate that. And so they had policies in the 1900s to take us away from our families and to put us in white families and part of that construct was we weren't allowed to talk our culture or dance our culture. So our, our language, our song, our story, there were attempts to take it from us, but we went underground with it. And it's only the last 20 years that's starting to come back. So my mother couldn't speak language, didn't know the old stories. We got herded onto what you would call reservations. We call them missions with big fences. And so I grew up in that construct where I knew I was Aboriginal I, I grew up just off the reservation or the mission. And so I knew who my family was on my mum's blood. That's Aboriginal. My dad's Irish descent in both worlds. But we weren't able to speak our culture. The only culture we saw was what was around us and experienced. And so I grew up assimilated, and that's what the Western world does. It says you must work hard, you must go to school, you must contribute, you must be part of this dominant culture, which I did. And so I worked really hard. And by the time I was 35, I had a degree in accounting. I had a diploma in surveying, a diploma in drafting. 
I was working three jobs. I was a marketing person at uni. I was a lecturer in economics and I was an oyster farmer, worked off the land growing oysters because I needed to earn money to, to feed my family. Plus, I was a contributing citizen, citizen in terms of what society says. But on the day of my 35th birthday, I sat on the steps of the university I worked at and I started to cry. And they weren't tears of joy. They were tears of absolute overwhelming sadness. And I'd been seeing a psychologist because I knew I wasn't quite right mentally, but it didn't stop me from the free fall. So I ended up curled up in a bed in a fetal position for months, just crying. With acute anxiety attacks, I couldn't go into any shopping centre, couldn't drive a car, couldn't talk on the phone, obviously couldn't work, would break out into the sweats, didn't eat, all those normal things that you have when you're in that state. And when I reached out to the medical system, they said to me, when I asked them, "Is this what is the cure for this? They said, there is no cure. You'll probably be like this for the rest of your life. You'll never work again. And I thought, wow, well, I'm only 35. My wife's 30. I've got three kids, or we call bore-eyes, three bore-eyes, under five. They're going to get bullied in the community because I know I was already copying a lot of, of, of negative feedback about how I was a fruit loop. And I didn't want my wife to have a life sentence having to kind of look after me because she was working the midnight till dawn shift cooking hamburgers to pay the bills. And I was told I'd never survive. I, I was told I'd never get better. I thought the only way to, to fix this and to show how much I love everybody is to kill myself. If I do that, I'll be sad for a little while, but then I'll move on and have a good life. The only way I can give them freedom is to get out of here. And so I went down the road to do that one day. And as I was about to do it, and if this triggers anybody, please, 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 please reach out for help. As I was about to do it, this inner thought, voice, whatever you'd like to call it, an angel, God, intuitive self, spirit, I don't know, said, no, you don't have to do this. You can heal yourself, prove the system wrong and help others. And I trusted it. And I went, okay, I'll do that. So I trudged back up in the hill, got back in, got into the car. The family were going to a shopping centre of all places. And I went to the shopping centre and sweated and had panic attacks all that afternoon. But I was determined because this inner voice told me everything would be okay. I was determined not to give up, and that's what I did. And as I started to recover, I got a different job away from the poison that that really broke my back. I had racism in the university environment, and it broke me mentally. I went to a new place that was nurturing, started to heal, and and as fate would have it, connected with someone who said, would you like to come bush with the elders and be given back your culture? And I went, wow, I've been wanting this all of my life, and here it is. I didn't know it was in my backyard. And I went and met, and I was told by well many people, this is not right, this is a lie, this isn't truth, they're making it up. But all I felt was beauty and love and wisdom and this ancient connection and a feeling. And I started to heal, and as I started to heal, I thought, I just want to become the old me again. And then looking back, that never, ever happened. It never, ever happened. What happened was far better. I became the real me. Going bush and learning this cultural stuff made me the real me. And part of that process, a, a counsellor said to me, Paul, I can't help you with what you're going through with your depression and anxiety, but I can say this is a message to you from you about you. And when you decipher the message, you'll be on a path of healing. And the message became quite clear. I was trying to be all things to all people at all times to fit in so that I could be validated and liked because I hated myself. Hence, I became part of this Western Western cyclone of going forward without knowing why. And so since that time, I pulled back and now I do what I choose to and hence I've healed and become the real me and then one day, and I won't talk about Uncle Paul yet. I'm sure you'll ask about him. But one day I met with Uncle Paul and I said, you know what, what you've given me, and I know you've been given it from 100,000 years of other people, has changed my life. I think it can change everyone's lives, just not Aboriginal people. And he said, yeah, okay, let's write a book. And that's what we did. Mm. Wow. Amazing. Country took care, basically. Yeah, one of the things I talk about since I've written the book and it's become a bestseller in Australia and it's also won an award as Book of the Year, which is quite amazing. 
Wow. And people ask me, what are some of the, the key points of Aboriginal culture we can use? They aren't necessarily clearly articulated in the book, but one of them is flow. Always flow like the river flows, like a leaf on the river flow with the river, don't fight it. If you're fighting things in your life, then it probably means you're not on your dreaming path. And the, the title of the book is Your Dreaming Path. And what the dreaming path is, is fulfilling our purpose and being on the path. And there's kind of the big dreaming path in our law, our, our way, we call it our law, is I must always care for my place and all things in my place. So that goes back to the creation story. So we all are born to do that. And the old people say we're all things, including us, we're conceived in love, we're born in love, we live in love, and we go back to love. So when we're caring for our place and all things in our place, we're on the dreaming path, but we all have a different way of doing that. Some of us are mechanics, some of us are podcasters. We're all different people. And so it's the antithesis of what we see in school systems and society. Instead of all becoming homogenous and trying to be all the same, our culture says, no, no, you're born unique and special and perfect. And the elders would sit and watch and they'd see our perfection and they'd build the perfection. They wouldn't try and change us and say, no, you need to go this way. And and that's, I guess, what I'm really about, to try and challenge people to go inside and say, who am I? <laughs> There's a famous, uh, my whole history, Paul, is in India. I went there when I was very young with the a, a person named Ram Das. I'm not sure who you know him. We never really talked yeah. about that. Uh, he came out of Harvard with the LSD experiments with Tim Leary. Oh, yes. And then he went looking for a map of consciousness and he found this being, which would be our Uncle Paul in India. Yes. Uh, it's, it's the easiest way to describe it. And um, there was another amazing saint in India and his whole thing was around who am I? He urged people yes. to discover themselves. So that's very much, I mean, there's only one thing going on as far as I'm concerned in all, all of this. The fact that you have had in Australia this huge uh, history of the continuation, thank God, the 10% that were left absolutely yes. kept that fire burning. Uh, now, I, I do have a something to bring up that I'm sure listeners are going to uh, wonder about themselves. I mean, you described that, you know, long time ago there was a, a, a utopia that indigenous culture created. Mm -hmm. You describe it. And, and then you say, do you think this kind of world can really exist? Mo and you say most people would say no. And right now they'd say a huge no considering what's yes. going on in this world and you say you disagree can you talk talk speak to that it would be important yeah well when I, I i do a lot of presentations on stage and i talk about the traditional aboriginal world where we didn't have wars we didn't have poverty we didn't have disadvantage we didn't have hunger we didn't have homelessness and they're realities and Unfortunate, most people that come and listen to me, they choose to. So I'm kind of preaching to the converted. But every now and then I'll see people rolling their eyes and every now and then people will challenge me and say that's a lie. And I'll say, well, I'm not going to argue, but our, our, our ancestors have passed this on and, and, and it's also recorded. And so we did have that kind of life. But in thinking about that, it's a, it's a bit about the metaphor and about the messaging behind it. So... Traditionally, we lived this world where we had all that we needed. So in my country, my country, we're saltwater coastal people. And so if you think about it, in terms of our traditional ways, we had a different way of knowing, being and doing than the Western world. So in the Western world, and I ask this of people, how many hours a day do you do what you would call things or work in order to survive. So it's not just paid work, it's it's driving and it's cleaning and it's going to the shops and it's cooking. And most people would say 10 to 12 hours minimum. In my country, in, in Waramai country, we were lucky to do 30 minutes a day because we knew where all the food was and we didn't have a $500,000 mortgage because we constructed our housing to suit our needs and then we could deconstruct it as we moved through country. And country would tell us where the food was. So 
we were salt water. So we had a smorgasbord of seafood to start with. And we had all of the vegetables and plants on the coast. And then at certain times, we'd go upstream and we'd go up into the mountains when we needed to. So we had all we needed. So we spent most of our time sitting around talking and sharing story and educating and visiting all the stuff that we had to do when we retire. Aboriginal people did that every day. And yet we were called and still are called Stone Age people. And people say, you didn't have the wheel, so you must be very primitive. Well, no, we didn't need the wheel because we moved. We didn't need to move big things. Why would you need to do that? But it was fit for purpose. Now, that's all changed. But the bottom line is we had all that we needed and we lived sustainably. So we had all the food and we always knew where everything was going to be. And so we always had what what we needed. That's all changed now. But what we need to do is borrow from the philosophies of that. So the world has roughly 7.8 billion people. The research says there's enough resource for every one of us. But how do we reshape that so everyone gets access to that resource? And then what are the values that are underpinning that? So what I argue at the moment, and I've got a bit of an economics background, is our world is really driven by competition. So from when we're born, we go to school and we have to fight each other. We compete in school, we compete at university, we compete in jobs. We're in an economic market called the competitive market. We're in organisations that compete. So we're always fighting each other, whereas the Aboriginal world is one of sharing. So this is about responsibility. And what are our responsibilities as human beings to each other? And that is to be loving, respectful, sharing and caring. So our, our four key values are love, respect, humility and always share. How can we embrace that in a Western world where we still have to work and we have to earn money and do things, but how do we do that in a way that fulfills our responsibility to care for each other and our place? And then that escalates upwards in terms of our leaders, our political leaders. How do we do that in terms of nations and countries where instead of creating disunity, alienation and hatred, how do we create love and unity? And it sounds a bit scripted, but it, th- these wise sayings are wise because they're truth and unity is where we find power. And so this world can be achieved, but it need <clears throat> we have the ability to create this world, but it's about having the desire and want to support the ability. And to do that, we need to demand better of our leaders. When we have a right to vote, we need to use that right really well in these countries where we can. There are other countries that can't. So those that can, we need to demand better of our leaders. And when we demand, it needs to be based on totality, not individuality. In Australia recently, we had a big referendum about whether Aboriginal people were going to be seen or heard in a, in, in a process in Australia, and the majority of Australians voted no. And it was heartbreaking, but it exposed racism and it showed that Australia really is bogged down. And when I looked at it, what, when I when I saw the video clips of why people voted no, they were saying we've got bigger we've got bigger issues here in terms of cost of living. I don't have to think about this rubbish. So what I saw was this growth of a society. It's not everybody, but instead of a giving society, we've become a taking society, where people are saying, "What's in it for me?" rather than "How can I help you?" And so this is a paradigm shift. But if we can change our ways. We can harness the beauties of what technology gives us. I don't necessarily see the Western world as full of toxicity and, and horrible things in terms of money and, and mechanics and technology. It's the way we use them. There are some marvellous things. We're talking today because of technology. It's how do we use these things in a loving way that's united and brings us together. And through unity, we certainly can make sure we have got equality throughout this wonderful planet that we have got. So I am a dreamer. It's not going to happen in one generation, but it is possible to embrace the traditional ways of love, respect, humility, and sharing and create a world where we don't try and become influencers on Instagram, where we don't have the need to be powerful and famous because the Western world research says our drivers of success are uh, materialism and power. I want to be seen and heard. The Aboriginal world, our drivers of success are, as I've already said, relationships, my relationship with you. So when you come to my country, I say, come here, my brother, and sit with me. And we become family. And that's the big challenge for Australia. But the world, in Australia, Aboriginal people are socioeconomically disadvantaged in all the indicators. But we are spiritually strong. 
because we have connections to our country, our mother. Whereas non-Aboriginal Australia may be socioeconomically advantaged, but they're spiritually filled with poverty. And so if they connect with us, we can connect them to country, share love, and then they can have something rather than 250 years worth, they can have 100,000 years worth to be part of. And then for me, everyone's Indigenous from somewhere across the world, we connect. And I certainly have a dream of connecting all of the spiritualities and all of these wisdoms across the world because spirituality isn't a competition. It's not a race to the to the finish line saying mine is best. It's about complementing and supporting and being together, which is why I love meeting people from across the world that have taken the time to sit down and listen and share their wisdom so we become part of that circle. Very much so. One thing uh, we should talk about, and it's also first we need to get a little bit of an interpretation because the word means, and I'm t- speaking to story, the word, um, well, I'll give you, for instance, I did a an audio book called, the, with a partner, a podcast partner, the movie of me to the movie of we and how does that happen? And we used ourselves as reference point in terms of the development of that me and the story we tell ourselves, which is which are filled with pro- projections, defense mechanisms. You know, ev- everyone has that kind of story. You're speaking to a different kind of story. So maybe let's parse that out a little bit. Yeah, so the question about stories it really opens up a, an insight into Aboriginal culture again. Aboriginal culture is multi-layered. So when we have a, a story, we'll have the same story, but the way the, the story we tell an eight-year-old will be different to a 15-year-old, will be different to a 30-year-old, will be different to a 50-year-old. There'll be layers. And so story is the same. So our culture is built on story, and I really have a big crusade at the moment pushing against Western or certainly Australian education systems with their focus on what they call STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, maths. Now, I'm an engineer, and I guess I'm a kind of mathematician too, but those things are our tools and they're important, but society building on those things has got it wrong. The Aboriginal world is built on creativity and it's built on story. So everything we do is built on story and song and dance. And I've written academic papers about, about these things recently. And then all the other bits can fit onto it. But our platform needs to be story because when our time is finished and the way the old people explain this, they say, when we leave this world behind, all we leave behind is our story. So make it the best story possible. So it's all framed around what is your story? And so... Our memories are built on our stories. When we look back and say, what are the really great times in my life? What do I want said about me? It'll be about story and people and interaction and and creative things. And I argue that the creative fuels our spirit. And the other things are more mechanic to enable us to live, but they don't necessarily fuel us, but we bring it all together. So story can relate to us. And so when I'm talking to, because I'm a consultant amongst other things, and I'll talk to organisations and companies, when a customer comes, whether it's a social service or whatever, they bring them with them a story so far. There's chapters there. And most of those people will say, when you say, oh, what do you think about your story, your life? Yeah, one of failure. I'm very disappointed. I've never achieved what I wanted because our mind has a has a deficit bias where we look at the negative of ourselves and knock ourselves. And that's not what our culture is about. Our culture is to say your story is perfect the way it is don't look back with regret and guilt. Embrace it and say, what can I learn from that if there are things that that, that are, are still scarring me? And, and love it and say, what will you give me? And then move on and then write the next part of your story. So that's the individual story. But with companies and organisations, they have a story as well, and then they're impacting on another person's story. So we have in the world all these interrelated stories. And then leaders in terms of responsibility they have a responsibility to create great stories around them. And so stories are everywhere. And the important thing is you and I are talking now, now 30 minutes ago, I knew your name, but that was it. 
my story up until this point in time was you just as a, as a name and a character that I'd never met. Now we're talking. So the last 30 minutes, there's all these paragraphs where you're part of my story. And that's a privilege for you to be part of my story is a privilege. And I'm now part of your story. And the people that will listen to this podcast, we're both part of their stories. And so the question to ask each other when we look at our stories, do our does our name in that story add to the story or does it take away? And in the world at the moment, if you look at the doomsday clock, we're a couple, we're 30 seconds from, from annihilation. So the global story is one of absolute crisis at the moment. How do we turn that around? We start thinking about each other's stories and how we interact and create better stories. And the last thing on that, when we look at individual stories, people think living a good story is being busy. And that's not a good story at all. In fact, it's the opposite. Slow it down. And, and embrace and say, who am I? And my research and my PhD, which I completed last year, talked about we need to really look inwards and find our identity because without identity, we can't have meaning. And without meaning, we can't have purpose. So first steps, who am I? Derek Zoolander, for those old enough that watched that movie, is an absolute genius. When he said, who am I? He was really capturing what it is all about. Who am I? And then once you know who you are, then you can start thinking, so what is meaningful to me? What do I get out of bed of the morning? And then, okay, now I can see what my purpose is. And the purpose isn't this falsely articulated drive to have a house with six bedrooms and three toilets, or we call them jilloirs. Why do you need three jilloirs? Why can't you be happy with a smaller house? So that's our individual story. It's not about being busy. And I do a lot of workplaces where I go and talk to people and everyone's saying to me they're stressed, they don't sleep at night. And I'll say, I've got to go now. I've got back-to-backs. There's this new term, back-to-backs, that everyone holds up as a badge saying, look at how many back-to-backs I've got. And I say to them, on your tombstone, do you want to say, here is Ragu, he had more back-to-backs than anyone <laughs> that I've ever met. Yeah. And people laugh. Yeah. But they're in this competition spiralling downwards to see who can get the most stress from the workplace, and that's not what we're meant to do. We're meant to fulfil our obligations to our families. So in the Western world, we now have to work. I have to work. I have to earn money to pay things. Instead of living on country, I've got to buy a piece of land like everybody else. That's the way it is. It is what it is. At the same time, I need to think about my other obligations, which is to care for other people, which is to go out into country, which is to care for me. And in terms of our story, people don't spend enough time looking inwards and saying, how do I care for me? And so I say to people, Think about your best friend, and in any given situation, if this was happening, what would you advise your best friend to do? And they'd say, I'd tell them to do this, I'd tell them to do that. And I'll say, well, take that advice and do it for yourself. Slow down, do some recreation, go out and connect with spirit. Don't just be driven by this false agenda of accumulating materiality and money. There's research that shows there's a certain amount of money we need, and after that we get really unhappy. And money itself doesn't care. (laughs) It just sits there. And so in our way, we say don't give your power away to things. Don't give your power away to money. Don't give your power away to fear. Don't give your power away to what other people are thinking. They're the kinds of things I see all the time where people get diverted from living their story or walking their footsteps and they start to live the stories of other people's expectations, which is what I did for a very long time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, You know, one important thing that you mentioned when you referenced uh, this uh, holy person in India that uh, he became realized, enlightened through, I'm not going anywhere until I ask that question and get an answer, who am I? And he actually did get one. I mean, extraordinary being. And, you know, so then you talked about identity, you know, and most of us are so... Uh, wrapped up in our identities as to not be able to see the authentic self at all, which is why, you know, the work that we do in in terms of this podcast network, the foundation that we have is called Love, Serve, Remember. We encourage people to go inwards and ask that question, who am I? So that yes. the reference point for the true being that we all have within ourselves and 
the other part that oh, I got to be in the world, so I got an ego, I got to do this, I got to do that, I, I fall short, I, you know, I have all of these recriminations possibly, so that when you have that uh, inner identity, when that comes out even just a little bit, the rest of it you are not so hooked on hooked on power, hooked on money, hooked on lust, greed, all of it. And uh, so I think that's a very important point that there, there has to be, you were fortunate, you were in all of that, and then you, lucky you, you, you got to the point where you were just depressed, you couldn't do anything, you couldn't act. And then mother, I call it country, mother, I mean, mother, I understand through my experience in India very much so, took care of you. And and you were handed back your, yes. uh, your, your tradition, basically. You were handed back also a way in which you could find that who am I and reconnect with that being. Um, so uh, I think that's really important. I, I love this thing from Uncle Paul. The first thing we have to know before we can help anybody is their story. We have to know the lore relating to their story. That is, we have to know the rules, responsibilities, and obligations relating to their story. Once we know their story, then we can act in love because we will respect their story and make sure what we do fits in with that story. What we do will be right. But if we don't know their story, we aren't really acting with love because love includes respect, tolerance, acceptance, and understanding. If we don't know their story, we can do more harm to them than good. That's extraordinary and so apt, uh, particularly, I mean, I won't say that we've got, you know, We've got the worst situation here in the United States. There's such, uh, I mean, people that are running countries that have taken political power that have absolutely nothing but self-interest in mind. And we don't, you know, I can't say that, well, we have something pretty onerous potentially happening in terms of of someone taking over and, and really destroying our democracy here. It's possible. And we have to take it seriously. But uh, I, uh, I say what Uncle Paul is pointing to here is so apt because, and, and personally, I, I have a lot of trouble. Do I interact a lot with people on the opposite side of the political uh, corridor? Not really, because I've, I, I, I don't know that I can... I can do it in love. I don't know, uh, you know, that that would include respect, tolerance, acceptance, and understanding. This this is a very high bar, really. And I think it takes us finding that, going back to who am I, and finding that truer identity and coming from that place, you know? Yeah, and what we're talking about is generational change, really, and being patient. So when I was first introduced to the law, it was a long time ago, and I didn't have grey hair. And I was very enthusiastic, and and when we get enthusiastic and we're young, we're somewhat naive and thinking, yes, we can bring the powers of, 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 of horror down and we can fix all this. What I've realised in my, in my autumn years now is this is generational. So Paul and I, we both now are seed planters. So even though we still get and do these kinds of podcasts and we are trying to be direct agents of change, we put a lot more of our time into the next generations. So they, we sit around fires and in the bush and we share stories and, and give them the ability, knowledge and will to continue the conversations and continue this, this change process over generations because our observations in Australia is there's a percentage, if you look at the kind of curves of people, there's a percentage of early adapters that we we know when we talk to them, they go, yeah, I'm with you, and you would have those. Then you have the fence-sitters that are, that are somewhat logical, and if you give them an articulate argument, and it can be spiritually based on others, but they'll go, you know what, that just makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm on. 
And so that middle ground, we generally find you might have 25% early adapters, then you might have 30 40% fence sitters, and you might have 20%. Who, no matter what you do, they're not going to change. We don't even bother. I mean, we're happy to talk to those people, but generally speaking, we don't seek them and they don't seek us because it is changing. Younger people are coming through with a far broader view of the world, partially because of social media and, and, and communications where propaganda is less tolerated, even though we can argue social media is a propaganda tool. Young ones are questioning. I know my kids aren't very good at knowledge recall, but they're really good researchers. We'll sit there and see something and they'll go, do, 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 do. oh, there, there it is. That's what that person is. And so let's give credit where credit due. They're really brilliant researchers. And so rather than shake my finger and say, back in my day, I knew my multiplication tables, which I still do, and they're good. There's these other things, and we all work on, on our strengths and our weaknesses. So what we're seeing is generational change, certainly in Australia with the referendum again, when you look at the demographic breakdown of who voted where, the younger people all voted yes because they support social justice, they support environmental awareness, all those things. And so our younger people are geared up and they're growing so they can continue these conversations. And what it's about, and my book is geared this way, and my PhD, I researched it and was able to validate what was in my head, but I didn't know it. And that is we need to create safe spaces for these conversations because there are some people who aren't quite sure how to have the conversation and they're not necessarily comfortable. They feel like outsiders. So it's about how do I create a safe space to share the information without pressuring people to say yes or no, I'm in, I'm out, I'm on the bus. And then they can just go home and have a think about it and start going, yeah, there's bits of that I'm going to be part of. And then we spread that. And we create a ripple effect of change where people are conversing. And so I run in-country leadership walks where we walk for 12 kilometres and I talk about leadership. I've just finished a book on leadership. It'll be coming out next year. And what was interesting about those days is when the people come together at the end and say what they got out of the day, everyone has a different talking point, 20 people, different things. And so it shows... We're all diverse and we all have different gaps to fill and we all have different triggers that we like. And so hence the importance of sharing story and conversations without an agenda in terms of you must, but an agenda of please listen and what do you think? And then we get people on board. I mean, the people I saw in the referendum that were full of hatred and we are becoming a hatred society, what I see in Australia, where there's a lot of toxicity. I still think it's a minority, but it's far more vocal. But they're angry because they haven't got justice in their own lives. They say, what about me as well? Because they might be homeless or they might be struggling. So once again, it comes back to what are the drivers and why are people doing this? The why, 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 why? A lot of those people don't have identity either. And so they're bitter. And so we need to be loving and healing, but it isn't necessarily in a direct way because that could be just pushed back and in a sense we're only on this earth for a certain amount of time, so we need to use our time well, including having our breaks. Yeah, absolutely. That takes, I mean, you talk about it in the book a little bit, a lot of humility to be able to engage that way and giving up of our righteousness about what we believe is this is the only way. We have a lot of that as well. Uh, it, I, th I think that um, one of the great things, especially that the umbrella for everything that I do and that we do with the podcast network and with uh, this teacher, Ramdas, uh, is, you know, the umbrella is love, serve, remember. So then when I read from, from the book in, in Aboriginal culture, loving yourself is respecting that you are conceived in love, born in love, and living in love. Loving yourself is, is an important element of loving your place and all things in your place. I mean, this is so common to all I mean, stemming from, you know, this, this ancient, ancient history of, of Aboriginal peoples, particularly, of course, in, in Australia and in other parts of the world, you know, our, 
we did what happened to Aboriginal people in Australia. We did it here. It, I'm from Canada. We did it in Canada. I mean, it's extraordinary when you think about this. And and thank God it survived. Enough people survived to pass on because uh, in my mind, um, we have somebody who's doing uh, an Indigenous podcast now that's just going to start, somebody who's very involved, lives in the U.S. and so on. And um, endemic to all of them is this reality of, of uh, a love, not the kind of love, it's not romantic love, it's not, it's, it's, it's not lust, it's, no. it's unconditional is the best way I knew it. it when I met mm. my Uncle Paul, whose name was Neemkar Baba in India with Ram Das, it was unconditionality that was extraordinary, generosity, humility, all of those things. And I think that's, you know, very much what's uh, missing in, in this equation, would you say? Yeah, well, society builds that, builds that. I mean, part part of going forward in terms of flowing is sitting out in country, in the bush, in nature, and kind of unlearning all the rubbish that's been put into your head from when you were small. Yeah. And so this this not loving yourself is built from preschool because everything's a competition. I don't know what it's like in America. I think it's the same. You're in Australia in primary school when you're, you're only six, seven years old, and they're starting to pick teams. And if you're not sporty, you don't get picked. So straight away you go, oh, I'm, I'm out. I'm an outsider. And so you start to unlove yourself. And then there's a lot of bullying going on and, oh, yeah, look at you, you're fat or you're this or you're that, aha. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, I'm horrible. And so you either become a people pleaser or you become angry. And I became a people pleaser. And as I said, then we battle through to get good grades and so we're fighting each other. And we're always comparing ourselves. And part of what you've just read about, we're born in love and live in love. What that's about is you don't have to prove yourself to anybody because you're born in love, you're born perfect. You have an obligation to learn and grow. That's all of our obligation responsibly. We're here to grow and learn and give. But we're born perfect. But what do we do in the Western world? Because we're fighting each other all the time in terms of a competition and battle, we're always looking over our left and right shoulders to see who our competition is. So we're always comparing. And when you're comparing, you're always going to lose because you'll always find someone that's good at something, more so than you, and you'll go, yeah, there you go, I'm no good. Mm -hmm. And so no one comes with their story except egotistical people because they overcompensate. Most people come with their story full of regrets saying, yeah, I'm not good enough, I'm a disappointment to what I thought I'd be when I was a child rather than say, my story has brought me to where I am. And I guess an example for me is when I recovered from my breakdown, I re-engaged with the workforce in education. And in 17 years, I became a CEO, which is unheard of. Normally, you have to be around for about 30 years. No, actually, in 12 years, I became a CEO. Hmm. And I ran a, a big educational organisation with 1,200 staff and a probably $50, $60 million US budget. And so I was quite successful. And then I got headhunted into a more senior role where I was the most senior Aboriginal or Indigenous public servant in New South Wales, which is a really big state, where you could say, wow, you've hit the top of the tree here. But I found it was very toxic. And because of my value systems, once I realised that, it took me a while. But I basically left and started from scratch with no career going, I've got to walk my footsteps and be me. That was 10 years ago. Oh. Since I took the plunge 10 years ago, I've completed a PhD. I've got a best-selling book that's won an award. I've got a consultancy where my son and I have had to bring him in to help me where we're doing big analytical reviews that are making huge authentic changes to the way things are done for our people. And so I could never have predicted any of that happening 10 years ago, and yet here it is because I stood by what I believed in and trusted it, and it took me to these places, including talking to you. This wouldn't have happened had I stayed in my senior public service role. So this is about going into your intuitive self, seeing who you are and trusting those decisions, but doing some forensics and saying, why am I feeling that I need to suddenly 
give this all up and buy a drum kit. You need to go, what? Why am I doing that? Because I noticed that you've got a musical background. I used to play the guitar in cafes and you're never going to pay the bills with that. But gee, it feels good, you know. So <laughs> so it's about it's about living in those different worlds, saying, well, here's what I feel. And it's trusting, but also going why. Whereas now my intuitive connection to my gut feel is so strong, I don't even have to go and do the forensics. I just get a feeling and away I go and bang. And I know it's right. Mm. Resilience, eh? Another topic that you bring up. Uh, I like to talk about it a lot myself because it takes some resilience to go with the ebb and flow of what is life. And, uh, you know, that's definitely definitively part of it. And the other part of it that uh, we should bring up, which is again something, I mean, you have so many things in this book that are just you know, just leap out as, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. You know. Um, Actually, when, I'll tell you this little story. When I went to India and I met this this being, my Uncle Paul, we'll call him, all he said was, there's only one thing happening. One. And in Hindi, it's sabek, all one. It's all one. You know, the Hindu God Krishna, the Christian Jesus, the Mohammed, there's only one thing going on. <laughs> that was my introduction. So as I read through about, you know, every, you know the, the incredible uh, interwoven nature of what we are and what this planet is and how we are woven within it, I mean, it's just, uh, it, it's very... It leads to some optimism, Paul. It's it does. It's yeah, and and we'll get there. But but the paradox is, if I'm greedy, I'm hurting myself. Mm. Because if I'm greedy, I'm taking away from someone else. So therefore, they will suffer, and if they suffer, I can't be well. So, but tapping back into to resilience, resilience. We all know what it is, but people get confused. So resilience is the ability. To, to flow and then take a hit, hit the canvas, be knocked down, hit a pothole or face a challenge, and then at some point you bounce back and you're back into the game and you, you bounce out of bed of a morning going, yep, I'm back in the game. That's different to endurance. So a lot of people get caught up in endurance, but they think it's resilience, and so they become very stoic. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm resilient, but they're not. They're stuck in endurance, and we can't run a marathon every day. Most people I see that think they're resilient, they're actually not. They've got themselves seduced into a place of endurance and they don't know it. So the first thing to be aware of is that I'm actually in endurance now. And how do you know that? Resilience is when you bounce out of bed of a morning going, yep, I'm into it. Endurance is, oh, my God, only another 40 years and I'm out of here. <laughs> That's endurance. But being Aussie, Aussies and Aboriginal, we tend to have a lot of lot of laughing and, and jokes. So I've come up with the the underpants test of endurance versus resilience, which I talk about on stage, because people will listen to say, what's underpants to do with anything? <laughs> but you would get this in America in winter because, you know, it can be damp and dark and really, really cold. So this is, this is a test like in winter, you get up to go to work of a morning and it's still dark and you get your underpants and they're in the dark. So you just put them on and you realise they're on back to front. <laughs> Now, if you're resilient, you just pop them off, turn them around, and off you go for the day. But when you're stuck in endurance, you just go, oh, well, that's the way it is, and you spend all day in discomfort because you're in endurance. (laughs) And the joke I make when I'm in conferences is there'll be 10% of the crowd go to the toilet to check out which way their (laughs) undies are facing. So the underpants test is a a wonderful kind of way to think, yeah, do I just put up with or do I turn around and say, no, nah, no, nah, that won't stop me. I'm back into it. Because we all face storms in our life. Mm. We all face the storms. It's about how do we manage the storms? How do we manage our challenges so that they don't keep us down? Every now and then we're going to get down. My mother passed away six months ago. Mm. Absolute worst time in my life. And uh, I cried yesterday. I cried now. Mm. But. How do we face these storms? And and they're not easy, but that's the biggest storm ever in my life. But 
I'm so thankful that I had her for 63 years, the most kind, giving, beautiful person that me and others have ever met. And so I say to myself, how can I live in her honour? Because she's not here and that's really, really sad. But what's the silver lining and is I got to know her and what can I, what do I have in me from her so I can be part of her story, you know? And so that's how we face our storms. That's resilience versus going inward and just saying, well, life sucks and I'm just going to hate everybody. Yeah, right. Yeah, perfect. Well, we're at the end of our uh, chance to get to know each other is what I call it. These podcasts are Mm. that way. But I do want to. I, I want to read something closing uh, from the book, and again from Uncle Paul. I mean, he needs to be represented here, which he is throughout this book. But in this, yes, podcast. yes. Um, and it's about balance, which is again a, a tremendous uh, subject that we share, a theme that we share out a lot. Nature, if left alone, will always find balance. Night and day, the seasons, birth and death, everything is in harmony. Traditional Aboriginal society lived in harmony with the land. We ensured balance in all we did by looking at and listening to the land. If we don't look and listen to the land, we create imbalance, we create disharmony. If we don't look and listen to each other, we create imbalance, we create disharmony. If we don't look and listen to ourselves, we create imbalance, we create disharmony. To live a good story, we must find balance and create harmony in our lives. We must find our truth and understand what is important to us. Look at the world. Is it in harmony or disharmony? Is it in balance or imbalance? As lore is forgotten, disharmony grows and balance is lost. There is no time like the present to restore it. Perfectly said. Perfect. Yeah, and, and that raises issues about how we all search for this almighty quest around the concept of work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the work and just say life balance because by saying work-life balance, we're giving work far too much emphasis. Yeah. It's life balance. And work is part of what I do, but it's not who I am. Yeah. This goes back to what you said, who am I? Yeah. And when we do that, I mean, it, this goes back to the L's of law before love too. Before I go out seeing, seeking balance in the world, maybe I need to go into my own backyard and find balance in my life before I go out telling everybody else about it. Yeah. So, so a lot of this stuff we need to actually yeah. live it, feel it, understand it, and role model it before we go out telling everybody else about it. Yeah. We And we need to do the inner work that's necessary yes. to identify that true identity. So, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Wow. Thanks so much, Paul. Wonderful. Great. So great. Wonderful to meet you. Yeah, same here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody, uh, of course, the book, which, oh, I'll show the book. Here's the book, The Dreaming Path. And it's going to be linked in the show notes. You go to Wonderful. BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling and you'll see the link to Paul's book and Uncle Paul. And uh, it's, it's the, the, the word I would use is optimism. This mm. book gives you a charge of, okay, we can move in the right direction. We can okay. use some of this knowledge, some of this lore, as you refer to it. And, and really make changes in, in terms of what we are doing to mother, period. So yeah, I'll fin- And I'll finish with a, a definition of leadership that's in this book and in my new book, and that is the Western view of leadership is an ability to lead a, a, a team of people to achieve delineated outcomes in a given time frame, which is very narrow. The Aboriginal definition of leadership is to fulfil my responsibilities to care for my place and all things in my place for my children's 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 children. And so that's why this book is focused on strength-based optimism because it's not about us per se, even though we want to have a life of contentment, and that's what the book's about, how to live a life of contentment. It's about what are we leaving for our children's 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 children because that's what our story is about. 
what are we leaving for those who are coming ahead of us in terms of setting them up so they can live a good story? Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Well, we, we'll have to do more of this, Paul, somehow. Actually, what I have to do is, where are you in Australia, by the way? I live in a city called Newcastle, about 90 minutes north of Sydney. Paul oh. and I are hoping if the, if the book has enough reach in America, we're hoping to come over there oh. and, and, and do talks because this isn't about sales. It's about sharing our message for a world audience to connect all of us. And so we're very keen to do that. And uh, there are more books coming out. There's a book coming out for eight and nine-year-olds later in the year. So it's it's built on fiction and dreamtime stories, but so young people can start uh-huh. feeling stronger about themselves. And then I've got a book in, on leadership coming out, or me and Uncle Paul have next year. Right. Well, you must get in touch with me, us, if you plan yeah. to come over here. Absolutely. We'll wonderful. Do. That'd be wonderful. To help support. Everybody, we'll see you next week. This is Mind Rolling. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and we have a whole plethora of, of engaging and wonderful teachers and presenters and podcasters. And uh, we shall see you next week. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye.